You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to The Good GP. Today we're interviewing Dr Peter Silbert, consultant neurologist in private practice in Perth. He's also a clinical professor of neurology at UWA and he has a particular interest in migraines. Last episode we discussed the diagnosis of migraine. This week we're discussing management. Hello Peter and welcome. Hi Sean. Let's start with acute treatment first. So Peter, let's assume we're confident that we've diagnosed migraine. Patient gets blurred vision, followed 15 minutes later by a throbbing left-sided headache that is associated with nausea and photophobia. Do we write them a script for sumatriptan nasal spray and send them on their way? Or is there a more nuanced approach? I think, Sean, with treatment, it's very much individualised and it's trial and error for the patient. But really keeping it simple, starting initially with a simple analgesic. So in that scenario you gave, I'd probably suggest that they initially take aspirin, 900 milligrams, and whether you use the chewable or the soluble really depends on availability. For patients who are getting queasy, it's really important to treat the gastroparesis that goes with migraine. Some of that queasiness is central, but some of it's actually gastroparesis. And there's a tendency to use ondansetron and similar drugs, but really it's much better to use metoclopramide or domperidone because they increase gastric emptying and therefore absorption. So at the first sign of a migraine, the aura symptoms, that patient would take aspirin, 900 milligrams, perhaps associated with domperidone, 10 milligrams. And then if that didn't control their symptoms, 30, 60 minutes later, they can add in a tryptan. It's good to have that staged approach, otherwise patients end up taking too many tryptans and that leads to other problems. And I remember in the talk of yours that I went to, you mentioned the chewable aspirin and you said that's because of its availability, they can carry it around in their purse or pocket. And one of the problems you often see patients run into is if they're thinking, oh, I can't take that because I haven't got water or I can't take that because it'll make me sleepy if they're talking about a tryptan, you really want patients to take the medication when they first get that headachey, prodrome, perhaps early visual aura, it's going to be much more effective at that stage before inflammation is well established and before gastroparesis is well established. So it's a matter of spreading around the aspirin, even the paracetamol or the ibuprofen, having them with easy access to take early and not delaying. And I also remember in your talk you had an acronym that was very sensible and sounded like something we should be using a bit more. Do you want to just run us through that? When it comes to treatment of migraine, I think particularly when you get to the stage of prevention, so not everyone who has migraine needs to be on a preventative. It really depends on the number of migraines you're getting, the morbidity. You might get one severe migraine a week, but it's present on awakening and really hard to control because by the time you wake up with your migraine, you've missed the start of it. So I tend to put a lot of emphasis on lifestyle factors and things you've got to talk to patients about that are important when it comes to managing and preventing their migraines. And it's also relevant when they get their acute migraine. So if you've got an acute migraine, that is not the time you want to have a stressful day at work, get sleep deprived, hypercaffeinated, not sleep well that night, miss meals. It's only going to make your acute migraine worse. So the acronym I sit down and discuss with patients is actually migraines. And the order perhaps isn't ideal because it starts with M for medication overuse. But I just make sure I cover all these points with patients. So M is for medication overuse. I is for intake of stimulants, referring primarily to caffeine in the form of coffee and Red Bull. G is you really have to have a good night's sleep, but not too much sleep. And it also reminds me to check with patients whether they've got sleep apnea. R is for restfulness, stress, anxiety, depression, 
mood disorder overthinking because patients have to be in that right state when it comes to managing their migraine or preventing it. A is for avoiding aggravating factors and the things I talk about there are foods, fasting, being overweight, estrogens, strong smells like perfumes, smoking and hypertension. And then we come back to our acronym, I is for intake of water. Hydration is so important, both in terms of prevention and when they get their migraine. So I usually tell patients they really want to have their urine crystal clear. Very easy for men to do, much harder for women to do, particularly when they wake up in the morning, they're often dehydrated. N is for neck. That's sort of the overlap between a sore neck and getting migraines. And physios will often see patients and say, gee, it's your neck because your neck's so sore after a migraine, but that's just part of the sensitization. But again, posture, bad neck is important. E is for exercise. Some activity is good, not being inactive, overweight, that's not good for you in terms of migraine prevention. And S is for sunlight and glare. And that just sort of highlights those lifestyle factors that are so important when it comes to preventing migraine, as well as what to do during the acute stage. And actually that brings on a really important study that's been published in the last couple of years. And I think it highlights that we need to look at migraine much more holistically in terms of prevention, rather than just saying, take propranolol and you won't get migraine. And it was a study done in kids between about the ages of 8 and 17 years, and it was called the CHAMPS trial. And it was done in the US, published in about 2016. And they compared amitriptyline to pyramate and placebo. And after six months, the trial was stopped on the grounds of what they call futility, which really meant there was no difference between the three groups. In essence, placebo did actually better than amitriptyline and pyramate, primarily because patients didn't get adverse side effects, some of which were quite significant from amitriptyline and pyramate. And when they looked at the explanation for this, what they came down to is that there was one other treatment that all three groups got in common. They were seen regularly by a nurse saying, yes, are you taking your tablets? Are you being careful with sleep, eating regularly, not getting dehydrated, lifestyle issues? And it just goes to show that we need to think about those factors really importantly when it comes to preventing migraine rather than just put a reliance on medications. When I see patients with migraine and I'm starting to get to know them and they're getting to know me in terms of how we're going to approach migraine, I'll often say, look, let's take this approach. So go through the lifestyle factors. These are the things that can bring on migraine you've got to be careful of. Let's try aspirin 900 milligrams and 10 milligrams of domperidone or maxilon, plus or minus followed by a tryptin if you need to, and then come back and see me after three migraine. And then when they come back, we look at what were the factors that brought them on and how were they provoked and how could they have managed them differently? And patients start to learn the things they're doing that could change. Are they delaying taking their medications? Are they not taking something to overcome their gastroparesis at the time? Are they really burning the candle at both ends, which is a lifestyle factor, which is going to trigger your migraine? These are people who've got genetic vulnerability to migraine and they can't necessarily get by on four hours sleep and six coffees a day like their friends. (laughs) So you start teaching people about their migraines going forward, but really a, a strong attention to lifestyle factors. That's really interesting because there is a tendency when you're pushed for time to leap straight to the medications and the fact that the lifestyle stuff is so effective is I think for me was a real revelation it's just a shame we can't prescribe placebo on a nurse (laughs) (laughs) the other thing that I really liked in just there and what you've said is the concept of come back when you've had three migraines rather than come back in a month or come back in six weeks That is something we can use in primary care, I think, as well. One thing that I do, and I'd be interested in your take, is headache diaries. What's your opinion of headache diaries? 
I think I'm probably a bit contrarian when it comes to many of my headache colleagues about this. I mean, there's a, a strong reliance on headache diaries and they're very important in some situations. One of the things I talked about in that acronym was overthinking. And patients with migraine, particularly those that I tend to see who have quite bad migraine impacts on their lifestyle get what's often called anticipatory anxiety but I call it migraine anxiety so that's the gee if I get a migraine what do I take when do I take it gee if I get it I can't do this do that get it dinner ready pick up the kids do my work therefore I better take it but if I don't and they build up their anxiety and that perpetuates and fulfills the migraine and to a degree the same happens with headache diaries sometimes I mean the worst management cases are those and I'm sure you've all sat down with them where they come in and it may be the teenager with the parents who keep a headache diary or maybe they come with a partner who has a beautiful excel spreadsheet with incredible detail and then what you're doing is you're recording every bit of your pain now if you look at other areas of chronic pain we never ask patients to document to that degree we Mm. want them not to think about their headaches (laughs) good point so it's completely paradoxical so i do use headache diaries i use them quite often a more limited way i think it's really important in women to look at the relationship of migraines and menstrual cycle particularly when women think it all relates to menstrual cycle and depending on when the migraine might relate to the menstrual cycle you'll approach the management of that differently but not to be overly dependent and in some ways in some patients in particular you've got to downplay this migraine anxiety or dampen it down okay that's interesting i think just by the nature of your specialist practice you're going to get an increased number of these sort of ocd people who do focus on their pain i find in primary care the people who would really benefit from a short course of recording their headaches and headache precipitants are the ones who don't do it whereas the ones i guess that you would see are the the ones who record it forever and i think that's the important point you actually can't manage every migraine patient the same I do use headache diaries, but often I don't, or often I say, please stop doing them. So managing migraine is very individualised and very personalised. So there's a number of patients that I guess you're going to see that request the MTHFR testing. Now, again, I think they're the ones that are going to end up at your doorstep after briefly stopping at hours for a referral. Can you please talk us through what exactly this is? It's the world of the internet now that uh, patients get to migraine groups, they're all having MTHFR gene polymorphism testing, and really that just comes down to patients who have a genetic abnormality of the MTHFR gene have higher homocysteine levels. It's about 10% of the population. Now we've looked at homocysteine over the years in terms of cardiac disease, stroke, and maybe it has a role in migraine. It irritates the endothelium. The studies aren't great showing that if you treat it, it relates to migraine, but I'm always happy when patients raise it. It's a good vehicle to getting onto some other discussions about migraine. I mean, it's the treatment, if they have MTHFR, is they should take folate B6 and B12. It's an important entry into the fact that patients with migraine have an increased risk of vascular disease. And migraine is a recently recognised vascular risk factor. So when you look at the nurses' health studies, which have been done over the years in the US and are fantastic resources with 100,000 nurses or more in each 10-year study, at 20 years, if you have migraine, independent of age, smoking status, blood pressure, estrogen replacement. You increase your risk of having a heart attack by 1.39. You increase your risk of stroke by a factor of 1.62. You increase your risk of a cardiac revascularization procedure by 1.73. And that's reflecting 
the inflammatory nature of migraines. So I actually just use that as an entry in those patients or even in my patients I see anyway to say, look, it's really important you address your vascular risk factors. You should make sure your blood pressure is good. And we might get to that in a moment when we talk about how to choose preventatives. You should not smoke, obviously, exercise, weight, have a good cholesterol. Is there any evidence there that treating the migraines and reducing the frequency of the migraines will make a difference to that cardiovascular risk? I don't think the evidence is there yet, but you will all have seen those MRI reports that come with a cluster of little UBOs, those little white dots, saying non-specific can be seen in patients with migraine. And that is because patients with migraine are more likely to have those subtle abnormalities on the MRI. So it's a bit teleological, but if they're getting abnormalities on the MRI, they've got an increased risk of vascular disease. In theory, we would think that treating that will be beneficial for them. So if you move now on to prevention, when do you think about starting a preventative and how do you choose one? This might give you your option to do the placebo and the nurse uh, that you mentioned (laughs) earlier. I mean, look, the answer is as to when you start it depends a bit on the patient. I do encourage them to do all those lifestyle issues. There's no point in starting a preventative and burning the candle at both ends. So lifestyle things that we talked about with that acronym remain very important. It depends on the attack frequency, the severity, the morbidity, how hard it is to treat. But if someone's getting one or two migraines a month, you're much better off having a good effective acute treatment then you are taking a tablet once or twice a day that may have side effects. There's a lot of preventatives that we can use in terms of tablet. And the comment about placebo is that if you look at the migraine trials with orals, the placebo effect is about 30, 40%. Wow. If you look at injectables, like the new monoclonal antibodies for migraine in chronic migraine or botulinum toxin for chronic migraine, the placebo in the trials was 50%. (laughs) So in fact, we are doing well with our placebo and it just has to be recognised that we don't always know how these drugs work in migraine as a preventative and there is a very strong placebo response which is why we've got to think carefully about using expensive drugs. The way I think about which preventative to use I tend to look at the patient profile so our choices of drugs we've got beta blockers and A2R receptor blockers and ACE inhibitors we've got antidepressants such as tricyclics the nortriptyline or amitriptyline SSRIs and SNRIs we've got the anti-epileptics like valproate and topiramate we've got specific drugs like sandomigrin And that's our main group of oral preventatives. There are some others we use less time. So if I see someone and I check their blood pressure at a consultation and their blood pressure is 160 on 100, it's not unusual for me to find a blood pressure like that when I see someone with migraine because I'm new to them. And obviously that's not how you diagnose hypertension, but if they considered a consultation with me, which hopefully isn't too threatening, and sit there with that blood pressure, what's their blood pressure when they're having a busy, stressful Mm. day? So I'm much more inclined to lean towards a medication like cantosartans, the one I particularly use. I tend to use that more than propranolol. I think it's got less side effects. And I'm not necessarily treating hypertension, but I'm hoping their blood pressure is going to be much better during a busy, stressful day, using the analogy of white coat hypertension. If I see someone who's really not sleeping well and sleep is so important in the management of migraine, I'm much more likely to use a tricyclic. I might use nortriptyline 12.5 to 25 milligrams at night. I tend to use that a bit more than amitriptyline, it's less sedating. There are some studies showing that melatonin is as effective as amitriptyline with less side effects because really it comes down to good quality sleep. There are some very good studies on the use of more escitalopram and venlafaxine in the treatment of migraine as preventatives. And we can all identify the patients who are going to benefit from that. Mm. You know, they're the ones who tend to be a bit more anxious over thinking. We're not necessarily treating anxiety, but we're treating a factor that triggers their migraine. Sandomigrans, 
a very good drug in some patients. I'm quite hesitant about using it in young women. They gain two to five kilograms a year. Weight gain so hard to reverse. So I don't necessarily rush to send a migraine. In fact, that's probably one of the less frequent medications I use mm. in young women. So I try and choose my preventative around the patient. There's lots of theoretical reasons why these drugs work in migraine, but sometimes you can use practical mm. things that guide you. If we come to the newer drugs, the botulinum toxin, that's useful in chronic migraine. Now, chronic migraine is where you get more than 15 days per month of headache, more than eight of which throb. It's about 2.5% of the population, and botulinum toxins are very effective treatment. I think one of the tricks for diagnosing chronic migraine is when you see someone with migraine, particularly people with chronic migraine, and I can reflect back that I used to do this, it's so good to have a two or three out of 10 headache that people will tell you they get three or four migraines a month. But when you ask the question carefully, they're actually getting two to three out of 10 headaches most days. It's just great that it's not a severe headache, so they're not telling you about it. So they're happy with that. That's that's interesting because that's a bit like asthma. When you actually take the history on asthma, people come in when they've got an exacerbation, they get a cold. Well, actually, when you take the history, they're getting asthma so frequently that it's normal for them. Yeah. And then when you treat that asthma, they're so grateful. Yeah, they feel so much better. And it's, it leads to the under-treatment. So the question I ask, I tell them I'm going to ask the question in two ways. And I do this when I'm starting to pick they're getting a lot of headache. The first question I ask is, how many days a month do you have a headache, a migraine, feel headachey or vulnerable like you're on the edge about to get one. And then I say, well, let's ask it another way. How many days a month do you feel fantastic? No headache, no migraine, not headachey and not vulnerable. And then you start to see the true number of headache days they're getting and the impact it's having on their life. So if you see chronic migraine, botulinum toxin's a great treatment. We've got some new monoclonal antibodies just coming out. Arenumab is the first one. That's a monoclonal antibody against the calcitonin gene-related peptide receptor. And there's another couple coming out against the ligand this year. They haven't got through the PPS yet, but they're available on patient familiarization programs. And I think the really important thing is there's a lot we can do for chronic migraine. But I think there's also a lot that can be done at the general practice level in terms of patients with episodic migraine, less frequent, just dealing with all these issues, the general health issues that are so important for them. I'm not at all familiar with the monoclonal antibodies. Can you just give us a quick pricey on them? Is it a monthly injection? Is it one injection? There's a couple of different ones coming out. So CGRP is the neurotransmitter that is blocked by tryptans from being released and is the neurotransmitter that causes the inflammatory changes around the arteries and that is thought to mediate the headache itself. So the monoclonal antibody arenumab acts against the calcitonin gene-related peptide receptor it's given monthly. The trials were not dramatically positive. Now that sometimes is patient selection, but there's clearly a subgroup of patients who respond well. And I think that's a take home message with a lot of these preventatives. It's a matter of finding which preventative suits the patient. And the more options we have, the better it is for patients. And sometimes you've got to try one preventative and then move on to another preventative. And sometimes they have honeymoon periods when you start a preventative. But really for patients, you really just want to be there and to show that there are things you can do. There's nothing worse for a patient who feels that there's nothing else that the doctor can do to help them. But it's really working with them, the lifestyle issues, the different preventatives, working out what's triggering their migraines and trying to work around that. I remember previously you've mentioned that the simple intervention of 100 milligrams of aspirin every day can actually significantly reduce the migraine burden. Can you expand on that? In some patients it can. That's probably more with acophagic migraine. 
And we know when we look at triggers for migraine or the pathophysiology, it's very complex, but platelets come into the equation. Some patients you see present later in life with very frequent acophagic migraine have elevated platelet counts, essential thrombocytosis. But we also know that if they're getting a lot of acophagic migraine, aspirin is very good. We know that if they get very prominent visual aura followed by the throbbing headache, aspirin is definitely the drug of choice to use because you can take the aspirin at the start of the aura, possibly when tryptans themselves are not so effective, that tryptans mm. should be given as the headache comes. And in some patients, it's another good preventative, 100 mm. milligrams a day. Can you tell us what things would precipitate or should precipitate a GP to refer on? What are the, the nub of things that we should be referring on? I think most of the patients that I see are those with chronic migraine where we're really using drugs, botulinum toxin, the new monoclonal antibodies will become available. Some patients we use ketamine infusions, lignocaine infusions lots of shuffling with medications. I think they're really patients that benefit from seeing a neurologist, the really difficult patients. But having said that, when I see them, I do take them on on all those lifestyle factors. Mm. Often they do need to recognise that they can't burn the candle at both ends, that they need to address their mood disorder. I mean, if you look at patients with chronic migraine, 30% of them have anxiety or depression. Mm. Overthinking is incredibly common. So patients need to start addressing that holistically. I think general practitioners are great at the health lifestyle factors. I mean, those issues I raised in the acronym, they're the things you talk to patients about all the mm. time. Healthy patients who are well-balanced hormonally get less migraines. Yep. And probably the advice that we're giving them in terms of their migraines, in terms of treat sleep apnea, lose weight, make sure your blood pressure is well treated, restful restorative sleep, being relaxed, not hypercaffeinating, not getting dehydrated. That applies to general health and general practice. And mm. that's what patients need to hear rather than an over-reliance on preventatives. But then they need to have that really good strategy to manage their acute migraine when it comes and to feel empowered to do so. Yeah, okay. So the vast majority can be managed in general practice, which I think is the same with a lot of conditions. Well, thanks very much for your time today, Peter. It's much appreciated. My pleasure. It's been great.